Hello and welcome to the Michael Clark Show podcast, where every Wednesday I'll bring you an interview with a different special guest. Many will be from the world of sport. All of them have a story worth sharing. In a time when doom and gloom is all too easy to find, this is a place where we'll be promoting the positive. So I hope you'll keep me company each week as I explore where our guests get their motivation and inspiration from to succeed. Today's guest has worked with some of the world's top football teams under managers such as Jurgen Klopp, Ralph Rangnick and Eric Ten Hag. But how did Thomas Gronemark come to be known as the throw-in coach? What is it that he does that helped to catch the attention of illustrious names within the game? And what set him on this path? Let's find out. Thomas Gronemark, thank you for coming on to the podcast. You're absolutely welcome, Michael. You are an incredibly busy man, even during COVID and all the restrictions. But how is it affecting you as a coach? I'm sure there's nothing better than being on a pitch and being with players. At the moment, it's a bit different. Yeah, it's really hard at the moment because of traveling regulations. So some, some countries I can travel to and some I can't. And for example, UK, UK is totally closed down for me at the moment. So, so luckily enough, I can also do a lot of uh, online work with online analysis for different clubs. So uh, even though I'm in Denmark, I'm, I'm pretty busy. The term throw-in coach has certainly got a lot of people interested in recent years. A lot of articles have been written about it and a lot of people have shared opinions. But I I want to find out, when did you become obsessed with throw-ins before you thought, maybe I could teach someone else this? Yeah, you actually have to go all the way back to uh, when I was a little kid. I think I was like eight, nine years old when I, and that was in the the mid-80s. And I saw my big cousin Spend and Johnny doing long throw-ins and they were like um, 8, 10, 12 years older than me. And if you have big cousins, you really look up to, they're just totally cool. And every time they took a long throw-in, I just thought, oh, that was totally cool. So um, as a teenager, I tried to do the long throw-ins myself and, and like train a lot of them. And then, and then I, I was really good at, at, at throw-ins suddenly. So already from an early age, it became a, a really big passion for me. Then as the years went by, I, I reached the highest U19 level in in football. wasn't good enough to be a pro, but uh, in the mid 90s I went to athletics because I was very fast on the football pitch. And the first year I came on the Danish national team, uh, I was running 100, 200, 400 meters in relays, and I was in the athletics world for for six years approximately. And all seasons I was on the Danish national team several times, Danish champion too. And the best wrestle was in 2000 in, in Paris, where I, together with my teammates, won the European Championship in 4 by 400 meter relay for club teams. So all in all, it was a big success. But in 2002, I, I needed a change because suddenly I was training alone in my small town. I had moved because of uh, I met my wife. So I uh, want to find a new sport. It should be a team sport together with other people. I, I've always been really social, so I love to... To you know the the daily training and and relations with people. So I came into the bobsleigh sport, and that's a pretty, it's a pretty crazy sport, driving approximately 130 to 150 kilometers per hour. And I was a professional bobsleigh driver for four years, traveling all around Europe, Canada, the states. So, and it was in the middle of that bobsleigh period in 2004 where I thought, hey, if I can make a good throw in, why can't I teach other players to do it? So. After that bobsleigh trip, I went 
back home and, and went down to my local library to find that book about throw-ins. But there were no books at all. And, and I tried on the internet and, and nothing serious. So I, I decided to, to make my own throwing course. So I used approximately six months to analyze myself, uh, see myself on video, try to do th different things with my body. And then in the fall 2004, I had a throwing course. To be honest, I didn't know if it would work because I've only like tested myself. And I could have been starting with an amateur or youth team. But I had the courage to contact a local Superliga team in Denmark called Vibor. And luckily enough, they said yes. And they improved the throw-ins a lot, scored a lot of goals after throw-in situations. And, and the club had its best placement ever in the Danish Superliga. So all in all, it was a... a, a big success but also a great experience for me my very first club as a throwing coach there in 2004 so so uh, since then I've been working every day every hour with uh, throw-ins thinking about throw-ins all the time and the first couple of years it was only the long throw-in but then in 2007 I after I saw one of my teams being horrible at throw-ins just in the middle of the pitch I started to work on my long, fast and clever throw-in philosophy. And that, that's just throw-ins all around the pitch. Uh, everything you can imagine around a throw-in, not only the throw, but also the movement around uh, the, the throw-in situation, but also attacking and defending on throw-in. So yes, I'm a throwing coach and I love it. It's an amazing journey and it's one that I can't wait to kind of drill into. For people listening to your story, they might think none of those sports are obviously connected so you obviously are a person who has a lot of different interests and we're just always drawn to sport yeah you can say I've, I've always been drawn to sport i love to do sports i still love to do sports of course if i can play a little bit football i like to do that if i can do a little bit running i like to do that i've been playing a lot of street basketball my whole life still do it uh, one year in a club so 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 i just love sports and you can say if you look at my different sports you know the the transfer between uh, them individually are actually pretty logical if you look to it because the reason why I went from football to athletic was because I was really fast on the football pitch. The reason why I went from athletics to bobsling is was I was the fastest man in Denmark. I was also strong and heavy, big acquirements for bobsling. And people might think, okay, why throwing coaching? It's because I took my knowledge from football. I took uh, my physical knowledge from uh, athletics, not only from sprinters, but also some from throws. I took, um, you know, the knowledge from bobsleigh. We did a lot of video analysis every year, several thousand video analysis of the bobsleigh start. I used that in, in throwing coaching too. We were very innovative too on the bobsleigh team. So you can say to be a throwing coach is, I also think is pretty innovative. And then I've also been saying a lot of things from basketball, for example, around creating space on the pitch. So even though it looks like uh, it doesn't really, you know, stick together all of it in the connection to, to, to the job as a throwing coach, I think there's a really clear connection there. So, so for me, it's all about when you want to achieve something in, in life, it can be really good to take some of your uh, earlier experiences and try to, to pick the best part of that and then put it into your new assignment, new role or your new challenge. Already any coaches listening to this you can think about transferable skills and how they can adapt them to help their own players 
Yeah, it, 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 it's really, really important. And I think one of the most important things is to, one thing is to say, oh, you have to take uh, skills and experiences. But I think the first thing is to open mind and, and, and then just think, hey, everything uh, in life, not only sports, but everything can, can develop uh, me as, as a coach or what I do in my life. But I can also uh, do, develop the people I'm working with. And I'm not only looking at, at sports, I'm only also looking at, for example, uh, nature, uh, animals, for example, often looking at birds, a predator bird, and then some, a flock of small birds. How, what kind of awareness do they have uh, towards each other? Because they're living in the same place, but, but, but the small ones want to avoid the big one. And so, and you can take the same awareness to, uh, into throwing coaching too. I'm using that a lot. Sometimes I look at a, a piece of uh, art or a painting in a gallery, and then I see some, some, you know, some, uh, some lines drawn and, and something different colors and then i suddenly see a moving pattern or or, or space creation pattern or defending pattern in i can use in, in throwing coaching uh and sometimes i get an idea and then i can use it all, all in all so so in general i'll say be open-minded not only to to different uh, inspiration but also to to all people around you but also things you wouldn't imagine could could inspire you so so yeah well that's fascinating because it shows you have a, a creative mind as well uh, to even challenge your own thoughts at times so if you're in an art gallery and you all of a sudden get this idea even if you don't know if it'll work how do you capture that how do you remember it by the time you get home do you have a little journal you carry with you or or what's your secret to remembering those moments of inspiration as they arrive you can say um it's they like sticking my brain if they're worth full enough and then i like like uh, of course sometimes I, I put something on my computer or i pick my notebook and sometimes it just sticks there and and i'll take it uh, you know uh, take it again or find it again if i if i have to use it and and so all in all just taking all the ideas i have and, and try to see can can they either be used directly in some area or, or can they be transferred to another thing? So I can give a little example that the other day I was taking a walk with my wife in Denmark. It's pretty cold too now. And I don't know if you know the situation where you have been, your pants are like too thin or you <laughs> an extra pair of pants. And then I was suddenly, I, the jacket was okay uh, and everything. Um, but I was just freezing my legs. And then suddenly I thought, hey, what's happening if, if I'm taking a different kind of strides? So then I tried to, to take shorter strides. And what happened there was the frequency went up. So it was a little bit more like the pulse came up to. Uh, but also when I had a, a shorter strides and higher frequency, my, my legs weren't so like affected by the cold wind because the, the gap between the legs were much smaller. And then I, I was starting realizing uh, or thinking about this. And then suddenly I, I had like this program for people are freezing their legs. Uh, how can, can, uh, can they have a, another walking style or technique? You know, that's just the way my brain, brain works all the time. So, so, and then sometimes I think, hey, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, t you know, take this on like, like to the next step. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm always thinking about things, you know. Um, another thing I thought about one time was, you know, we have a big challenge in, in society that people are often tired 
at the end of the day when they're driving a car. And of course, you can drink like like one and a half liter coffee, or you can like take your window and and uh, sorry, take your head and hang it out the window, <laughs> so you don't fall asleep. <laughs> but how how can you if you're chewing on something? Uh, can that keep you awake when you're driving? And then I thought about, hey, how is the 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 angle in your mouth between your upper tooth and the tooth below? And for example, is is an increased angle when you're chewing? For example, a carrot. So can that help you uh, keep awake? And so 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 you know, I I'm having this idea all the time. So so I'm I'm actually not really a a, a structured person who are thinking inside a box. So I'm constantly think, thinking outside the box. And then when I get the idea, I'm starting to structure things. Uh, and that's the way I, I develop things. That makes me think your wife must be a very lovely, patient woman at times. Yeah, first of all, she's a lovely, patient woman, but she also helps me a lot. And, and because I'm, you know, uh, she 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 finds all uh, the vitamins and so, and and sometimes uh, say to me, "Haven't you thought about that?" And so so it really helps me a lot because if I've been like single, I have a wife and two kids, and uh, on, on eighteen and and fifteen, and I think if I would have been single, I've, I've just been living like in a cave where where everything was just like in a big mess, and I had just been sitting with my notebook or on my computer or you know so so it helps me a lot because um i think if you want to have success being innovative you both have to have all these ideas and new thoughts and cooperate with people but you you also have to have a certain amount of amount of structure i can say that not in every part of life but in some parts of my life my wife helps me with that so so i'm really uh, thankful for that have you always been an outside of the box type of person? If I if I take you back to your school days, w w was that a problem or was it was it a good thing in school? What was your experience like? It was actually something a kind of a problem. It it wasn't that I I I didn't do well in school. I was just like, you know, medium level if you're looking at the notes. But my big challenge was that every time there was a, a question from the teacher, then I thought not of the right answer, but how it could be. You know, and and even though I think now I went to school like 20 years ago, and even though I think that that now there are like some weeks where you have to be innovative or create innovation in the school, I think that the school system is really set up to the logical and uh, mathematical uh, intelligence. So it means that you should read something, remember it, get the right answers, and and if you have like an assignment get the right answers. I know sometimes you have to think a little bit out of the box, but it, for me, it's a little bit like if you're like really creative, innovative, it's, it can be really hard in the school system. So I also got into trouble sometimes by being creative because sometimes it bored me just to read like 20 pages and then make a recap and then answer the the, the question from the teacher. So you had to remember what students cite 17. Um, so you you know you can learn many ways and and I think there's no right way to develop people and develop society, but I think that that the school should be more like for many different types instead. So because I see a lot of people who are not like uh, enjoying their school time and so and they're 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 first enjoying their like like. Uh, 
work life when they come into an actual work where they can use their like more pers personal skills and so so that's also one of my you know things i think about how can we change the whole school system i know it's different from country to country but how can we change the school system so so innovative or creative uh, kids can also really try that in, in, in the school too. So we can, and it's not about they have to get success. It's not about the society has to, to be as best as possible. It's all about, it's also all about that, that the kids, they should just enjoy being at school. Uh, and of course you can't enjoy every minute and second, but at least you should at least once a day think, Hey, this is going to be fantastic. So but right now it's all about the, the throwing coaching. So let's see about the schools in the future. Yeah, well, that's what sort of struck me reading about your story and even talking to you now. I thought millions of people have looked at football. And as you said, no one had that book that you wanted to find that day you went to the library. So it, it shows that your brain works a little bit differently, but that has worked to your advantage because you've also trusted those instincts. When you were going in initially, because I'm going to talk about breaking the world record in a moment, but if anyone's seen that video of you breaking the world record, they might think you walked in on day one to Super League Club and says, okay, you're going to do a somersault and launch the ball across an entire football pitch or whatever. I guess it probably wasn't that way. No, you can say that <clears throat> when I'm coaching the throw-ins in the clubs, it's with a, with a uh, normal run-in. The only reason why I... Uh, choose to beat the world record and you can say choose of course you never know if you can beat it <laughs> but in 2008 I've been a throwing coach for four years and I thought hey if I'm the only throwing coach in the world why not also be the world best at, at this too so at that time there was a official Guinness world record at 48.17 meters set by Mike Lochner from the States so the world record was 10 years old I could throw about 40 42 meters with with a normal throwing normal running and that's really, really far because if, if a professional football player or another football player can throw 35 meters, then it's world-class. Not many players can do that. Um, so I could throw really far, but I also knew that I couldn't beat the world record with the normal throw-in. So one day I saw a flip throw-in um, on the internet and I thought, um, how hard can it be? And, and for, for you out there who don't know flip throwing, you take a run in, jump down on the ball, make a flip, land on your feet and then throw the ball. So I thought it was pretty easy. So I, I went directly down to my local football pitch. And, Hold on, you thought it was yeah. pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. I, th I thought I could do that. Wow. So I just tried. And then I just landed directly on my back. So, <laughs> so, so a couple of days later, I was flying uh, at the physiotherapist, uh, <laughs> dealing with quite a big amount of pain. And then I thought, hey, I had to get help here because I was a non-gymnast uh, and I couldn't even do a small tumbler. Just, you know, I perhaps I had too much courage there uh, trying the first time. So I had help from three different gymnast coaches. And the last, the third gymnast coach was the, the national uh, team uh, women's gymnast coach from Denmark. So really, really skilled gymnast coach. So that's one of my best recommendations. If you want to achieve something, get help. It's not a shame to get help. Sometimes people think, oh, you have to work hard. You have to, you have to, yeah, you know, give it all. But, you know, sometimes it's much easier to get help. Of course, you have to work 100%. That's, but, but sometimes people are too stubborn and saying, hey, I can't do it myself. I can do it myself. I know, I know the best. 
I know everything. So, but I got a lot of help from these gymnast coaches and it gave me a chance to make a world record attempt in, in the match between Denmark and Spain in, um, in August 2008. Uh, it was a full stadium parking and I only threw 44 meters, but um, yeah, it, of course it was really far, but still four meters from the, from the world record. But I raised approximately uh, 10,000 pounds for diabetes researching the same day too. So really proud of that, about that. I trained on and then uh, I had a world record attempt more in 2009 in the match between Hertha Berlin and Wolfsburg at the Olympic Stadium in Berlin. So 40,000 spectators. So that was totally crazy. I didn't beat the world record there, so um, it was totally raining and I had to make a run in on, on the athletics track, uh, like surrounding the, the football pitch. So it was really tough conditions. I was beginning to uh, throw 46, 47 meters in training. And I, I was really close to the world record on 48.17. But then in 2009, there was a guy called uh, Michael Brooks from, uh, unschool, sorry, sorry, Danny Brooks from England, who set a new Guinness World Record on uh, at 49.78 meters. And of course, I was totally disappointed uh, because I've been trained so hard, also injured many times, trained every day. And first of all, I thought about making a world record attempt at the Danish West Coast, where there's always like like blowing a gigantic storm. So, but I thought, hey, that's not the right way. I had to find out how can I get help. And and my biggest challenge was to hold on the ball, because it's often when you're sweating, you're you're sweating your palms too, and it's not fantastic to jump out, down on your palms. And then I thought, hey, what can help me? First, I tried this sticky stuff you use in handball too. I don't know if you know the handball sport, mm -hmm. but they use stuff to hold on the ball, but it was just taking too much. But then one day I was sitting in the couch um, and, and it was a Friday night and, and my kids were watching Disney show uh, Friday night and uh, Friday night they always get some candy there. And then my girl, Isabella, she walked past me and then I don't know why, but by accident I touched her hands and, and I thought, hey, they are only sticky in a moderate way. So I thought, hey, can I do uh, something with that? So I contacted uh, the Danish big television uh, station, DR, that's a bit like BBC in, in UK. And, uh, and, and I asked them, can't we test what kind of sticky stuff that's best when you want to do a flip throw in? And luckily enough, they thought, hey, that's a really natural thing to do on live television. <laughs> so <laughs> so I went to a, a kids TV program called uh, Summer Tomorrow. And together with uh, some kids, I had three footballs and we put, uh, uh, put sweets, uh, prunes and licorice on each of them. And then I had a standing throw in with each of the balls and then uh, a flip throw in with the winner. And the winner was licorice. So you, since then I've been using licorice every time I'm doing world record attempts. And, and this licorice and that help from the licorice meant that I was much more secure jumping down on the ball and the ball would also be released again uh, because it was only sticking in a moderate way. So in, in April 2010, I threw 47.00 in an official world record attempt. In May 2010, I was throwing um, 48.68. So over the old world record was still approximately a meter from the new world record. And then in June, June 2010, I set an official Guinness World Record of uh, 51.33 meters. And uh, again, if you want to see it, go to my YouTube channel. It uh, looks uh, pretty uh, spectacular. 
It really does. I was watching it earlier on and uh, it, it's really worth watching. So go check that out on Thomas's YouTube. Um, what was that feeling like to finally accomplish it? Because as you've really well explained, there was a lot of hard work, some setbacks, but you kept going. You really wanted to get that record. Yeah, I think it was it was really fantastic to me, not only because of um, achieving the goal, because of course that's big enough itself, but because of all the challenges and struggles I have. The biggest challenge for me was that I was a non-gymnast. So I've seen some gymnastic uh, like people who are playing football and then they do a flip throw in. And for them, it looks like being pretty easy. But you know, I have to work for every single uh, percentage of, of, of being able to do that flip throw in. So the guy who, who beat the world record before me, Danny Brooks from England, he was on the uh, English power tumbling uh, national team where doing a lot of jumps in a row after each, each other. And so I think for him, what it, it was pretty easier than compared to me. So it was, it was gigantic for me to beat that world record because it was not like I was throwing like in, in the period around the, the throwing world record. It was not like I was throwing 48, 49, 50, 51, 48. No, I could make a throw on 38, then it was 45, then it was 42, then it was 49 because it was so hard for me. So even though on the day I set the world record, I had many long throw-ins in the period, it was uh, uphill for me. So so all in all, it was um, it was really, really fantastic for me to to be able to do that. And again, a fantastic, and a fantastic thing for my throwing company because you know, it's, it's been giving a lot of interest. Also, after I started working for Liverpool FC, it was a little bit like, oh, throwing coach, Liverpool FC, world record holder with a flip throw-in. So it's almost like there was a history there for every journalist <laughs> around the world. So it, in that way, it, it had helped me a lot too. Yeah, and I think your athletics background as well, you weren't shy of being in front of a crowd, you could handle pressure. These are things that you just naturally adjust to as someone who's you know competing regularly and obviously with bobsleighing as well. It's those pressure environments. So setting a world record, water off a duck's back, as we say, you're, you're used to that sort of pressure. Yeah, you can say one thing is to, to be used to a pressure to to perform 100% and make, you know, top performances. But for me, the other part is, and that's just so important, is that you can look at, at uh, high performance in many different ways. And I'm not saying that mine is the right one, but I'm just saying one of the most important things in, in my life is that I know I will fail. I know it will go totally wrong. It was a little bit the same in the bobsleigh. We knew we would crash and we knew it would be like being in hell. So, so how can you prepare before? I also knew that I would, I would get injured doing flip throw-ins. I also knew that I was, would be able to do, do bad. But what, what would I do after that? Because you see, the challenge by some like high performance or people who don't high perform is that I hear a lot of people saying, oh, I don't want to lose. I'm getting totally angry. And oh, I hate it. That's the reason why I high perform. That's also right. That can be, of course, a good thing for some people. I don't hate to lose. Uh, but for other people, when they lose, they, they lose motivation and they think, oh, I'm totally wrong and I'm, I, I, I'll never improve. But every, everyone who has been doing high performance and, you know, I've been winning 
a lot of things in, in my life in, in different sports, you know, improvement, it go, doesn't go up. It goes like in waves up and down. So even though you're re on your way forward, you can be much worse this week than last week, but it doesn't have to mean that you're, you're not on your way forward. So, so that's one of the uh, advances by, by doing bobsleighing, by doing uh, throwing coaching, but also doing a world record attempt in, 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 uh, in the throwing, but also athletics that you can measure it. So the better you are measuring your training, the work you do, your wrestles, the easier it is to see, hey, what was good and what was not so good. So because it can, it can never be 100% perfect. So you just have to look after the good signs and try to, to develop the things that, that's a little bit uphill. Fair play for not being terrified of bobsleighing. Were you the brake man? Uh, no, I, w- I was the the last man, so either second in the two months later, fourth okay. in 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 the in the four months later. And I l- like to say one thing: I was afraid of, uh, of of driving in a bobsleigh. First time, I was terrified. I never say I've, I've never enjoyed a ride. Yeah, yeah, perhaps if we drew on a track that was easy, where I was pretty sure we didn't crash. But all the time, I had to work with my mentality to be able to uh, like be uh, the best bobsleigh driver I could be. Because one thing is to go down the bobsleigh track. That's like horrible. A lot of guys and girls, women, men, when they have tried um, the bobsleigh once, they're saying never again in my whole life. A lot of people think it's like a it's like a wild roller coaster. No, it's nothing near that. I've seen big men with very big muscles and very big mouth before they tried first time crying after just one ride down the track without crashing or something because it's so brutal so so but i was afraid too and all the four years uh uh i was driving at I didn't enjoy the ride down there but you know i enjoyed the sport all the things we could do i enjoyed the teamwork because you're together with with people 24 uh, 7 enjoyed the, the teamwork with my teammates and the staff around the team I enjoyed traveling all around the world so so yes I was afraid of of of, um, of going into the bobsleigh but I handled it with mentality and some people are can just like put a put like something in front of their eyes and then they're not thinking at all but I have to lo- use uh, different mental tools so for example I knew that we we would crash uh, once in a while and and you know, several times I also ended up in the hospital and it's not like I'm proud about that, but I just knew already before, what would I do when we are crashing? How would I try to react? So, because then I was sure beforehand and then I could push 100% before we jumped into the sled. And then <laughs> I was just hoping it would go uh, well uh, all the way down the track. It's a sport that any time the Winter Olympics comes around, I am watching those events because I just I take my hat off to anyone actually brave enough to do it. It's such fine margins, and so that's why I have such an appreciation for it. You know, the pilot, really, it's it's little decisions here or there which could obviously end up in big injuries or big wins. Yeah, it's 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 just uh, it's it's a crazy sport. It's entertaining. It's brutal. It's fast, but it's also very technical. Of course, the pilot itself has to like drive in every in every turn of the pitch, and every every track on in the world is different. So it's not like right, left, right, left, right, left. You know, you have different different ways of of turning. Then it's left, right, 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 left, right, left, left. You know, and then it can be different. But but the, the curves itself can also be from like two meters high to like 
I don't know, 10 meters high. You have to work with different pressure points, but also as a, as a, as a, uh, you know, push athlete, it's not only about just pushing and then jumping in. It's pretty similar in the two man sled because then you have to just push as long as you can deliver energy to the sled and then jump in. But in the four man sled, it goes like after 20, 25, 30 meters, the pilot jump in. And then it's like a little bit according to how fast he is. Um, but he's just jumping into the state. He has like, like a little seat inside the bobsleigh. Then we have the second man uh, on the left side of, of, of the bobsleigh. He's pushing on the handle too, like the pilot. But then he's not just going into the sled. He has like a, a little board, stepping board. And he, you can't step up on it, and then go in. No, you have to like while you're sprinting, make a cross step and then jump directly in, you can't stand on the board. Oh, wow. And then, then the, the second man has to put his uh, spikes um, just on, on the perfect point because you have like, I don't know, two centimeters on each side. And if you're putting your feet wrong, then you're putting them into the pilot's ass or back. And you have like 300 uh, metal spikes underneath each, uh, each shoe. And, but he's just sitting down on his elbows. And then after the second man was jumping in after 30, 40 meters, then the se uh, third man is, is again jumping in after 40, 50 meters. He has to do the same just for, from the right side on the board. And then he also just sits on the elbows like half a meter over the sled. And then the fourth man that was me is jumping into the sled after like 60 or 70 meters again depending on the, the speed of the fourth man but also the, the the start the start track there um and and i'm just jumping totally into the sled i can sit down and when i've been sitting down immediately i'm saying now or go or something like that a signal you said earlier and then the second and third man who are sitting over the sled like half half a meter, one meter over sled, they're going down in the sled. And now we have like a, a puzzle of, of, um, of human beings or a puzzle of body parts, because it's not always that this puzzle uh, fits in. And because you have arms, you have legs, it, and there's no room in a four-man sled. So I've tried in training once, I said in the second position, I couldn't come down in the sled because you know, we, we, we weren't positioned well enough. So the, the, the third and, and the fourth man wasn't positioned well enough when they got down there. So the, like the first half of the, 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 the track, I was sitting like a meter over the sled and we were, you know, accelerating, accelerating. I think when I came down, we would run like 100 kilometers per hour. So like in, in curves like this. So, so it's really technical also. So um, for me, it's a fantastic sport and uh, I've learned a lot. And, uh, and I had four fantastic years in the sport. The way you've described it, I just imagined, sometimes I get cramped sitting watching television. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine being in there going high speed, needing to keep your balance, needing to keep your body position correct and realizing my calf hurts or my legs in a strange position or I'm too high up. That must all be uh, quite an experience to realize that in that moment. Yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to... It, yeah, uh, cope with because sometimes you know okay of course if it goes well then it's just like wow or pretty well then it's oh that was okay but often it's, it, it doesn't go well and, and I've heard a story about a, an Italian guy he was just they were all in the sled in the four-man sled but his leg was like like uh, sitting a little bit wrong in the sled mm -hmm. and they didn't crash but they don't like, just like hit the wall at some stage and just because they hit the wall he broke his leg so so it's not just a thing where you're saying oh oh uh, 
this gives us a, a tenth better time in the end. It's also about security, so 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 you don't want to. Even though I, I even though I could uh, talk uh, with humor about, I was sitting a meet up just letting that training run in the second position because I couldn't come down. It was actually pretty dangerous because I was not sitting securely there. Imagine if I was falling out of the sled, then it would be a, a catastrophe. So yes, it's a, it's a both a crazy but also a fantastic sport. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll come on to football now for all the football fans listening. But I just I thought getting a bit of a flavour of your personality and your sporting experience as well, because I think sometimes people overlook that and they just think you're a man that picked up a football one day and started throwing it, which is uh, not doing you um, any justice really. So that's why I wanted to make sure we talked about that. Um, when we look at your CV in terms of football, Thomas, it's incredible working with the likes of Ajax and Liverpool and others. Is it ever a pinch yourself moment for you that you're working with some of Europe's most famous footballers, coaches and teams? Yeah, still, uh, still sometimes I can't even realise that this is happening. So it's been more than a dream comes true for me because sometimes if you talking about dreams comes true you can imagine that dream but who could even though I, I've had ambitions to coach on the highest level who could imagine to to be a throwing coach for Liverpool win the Champions League with Liverpool and also win the Premier League with Liverpool after 30 years of waiting time it's more almost like a fairy tale uh, so and and especially the first 14 days I started in Liverpool FC in July 2018 and you, you maybe you may know that that uh, situation where you're dreaming of something fantastic at night, and then you're waking up in the morning and thinking, "Hey, that was only a dream." And then it's just like, "Oh man!" <laughs> and I did the same. Um, the first fourteen days after I, I uh, signed with Liverpool FC, and and I, I was dreaming that I was coaching Liverpool FC. Of course, a lot of different weird <laughs> dreams. Then I woke up in the morning and thought, hey, it was only a dream. And then I realized it was real. So it was really messing up my brain there. So yes, all in all, it's like a, like a dream come true for me. Not only the work with the big clubs, but also, you know, I'm, of course, there's a challenge now with the coronavirus now, but I've been... I've been traveling to many different countries. Uh, 2020, I, I was uh, coaching eight different uh, professional clubs. I was uh, traveling to three continents, so uh, including Asia and, and North America, to uh, a lot of traveling in Europe. So, in all aspects, it's 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 fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I love it. I find it really interesting when I was reading about you that. You know, you had to put in obviously so much work to get to the point that you were ready to, to be offered a job at Liverpool. But there was little moments of luck along the way in terms of you put out a tweet about a player you're working with. Uh, a German newspaper picks up on the story. They print your story and Jurgen Klopp just happened to pick up a paper. Yeah, you can um, you can say I've all, all along the way, I've, I've been 100% sure that I'll coach on the very highest level in, in world football. Before... Uh, the Liverpool job. I, I've been coaching in many days Danish Superliga clubs. Also, I had two seasons with with Brentford in the English Championship. Uh, but but the way it happened was that uh, I've been coaching in FC Midtjylland for many years, and I had this player called Andreas Paulsen who improved his throwing from uh, 
uh, 24.25 to 37.90, so almost 40, 14 oh. meters. Um, he was sold to Borussia Mönchengladbach in June 2018. And I was proud because he was only 18 years old. He hadn't really been playing so many games for the first team in Midtjylland. And he was sold for approximately, I think it was uh, three million pounds or so. So many money for a Danish teenager. Uh, I just wrote a tweet um, saying something like, uh, proud of Andreas Paulsen, uh, to Borussia Mönchengladbach, improving his brain from... 24.25 to 37.90 meters. Then I wrote like hashtag Borussia Gladbach, hashtag something else. And then there was a small uh, fan media from Borussia Gladbach area there who contacted me and asked, hey, can we make an article with you? And I said, yes. Um, and then a couple of days later, uh, a journalist from a German newspaper built called because uh, he had read that article written by the, the fan media. And... Um, uh, th he asked me also, can I make an article with you? And of course I said yes, because that newspaper is, is, is being read by millions of Germans every day. And it was exactly that article that, that uh, Jürgen Klopp, but also Ralph Rangnick from that time, RB Leipzig read. So, so you can say that sometimes small actions can lead to uh, life changing uh, things. So, and it meant that in early 2000 and, and uh, early July 2018, Jürgen Klopp called me directly on the phone. So um, that was totally crazy. And he just said to me that um, we had a fantastic season in the 17-18 season with a fourth place in the Premier League and a Champions League final, even though we lost. But we were just just so bad at the throw-ins. We lost the ball almost, almost every time we had a throw-in. And, and later I found out that Liverpool were actually only number 18 out of 20 in the Premier League, third last on throw-ins under pressure, where the players are marked with a possession on 45.4%. So Liverpool were really bad at throw-ins. So Jürgen Klopp invited me to, uh, to Melwood, Liverpool's training ground, uh, the week after, in, in the mid of July. And it should only have been a meeting and nothing else, but Jürgen Klopp was so convinced after the meeting that I had the chance to coach 21 Premier League players already the day after. Um, all the players weren't injured or at vacation after the World Cup. And I think already the week after I signed my my first contract with Liverpool FC. And um, yes, now I'm in my third uh, season with, with the club. And uh, yeah, it's been changing my life. So uh, I'm really happy for that. If someone told me Jurgen Klopp was ringing me, I think I would probably first think that a friend was playing a practical joke. Did you know it was him right away? And what was that moment like when you, you realize, oh my goodness, it's Jurgen Klopp? Oh, I knew it right away because a lot of people have asked just like you, do, did you know it was Jurgen Klopp? Something I'm making fun of you. But you know, when, when you're, you're listening to Jurgen Klopp's voice, you can recognize it. The first uh, time I heard his voice was actually on the voicemail because I was on a summer trip with my family and we had to visit a chocolate shop. And so I just thought it was a plus 44 normal who had been calling. I thought it was just a guy selling pens or so, because if you have a company like me, you know everybody is calling you. So I listened to the voicemail and then it was Jurgen Klopp. And I, if I hadn't been sitting in my car seat, I, I thought it was, I've probably been tumbling over. So going totally in shock because again, it's always been a dream for me to coach the, the biggest clubs in the world. I tried to call him back, but he didn't answer. So we went into the chocolate shop. And after that, I thought, hey, might as well go home to myself and take perhaps the most important call in my life. So 
I was driving the car, my wife's sitting beside me and, and the kids in the back. And then suddenly the phone rang and my wife picked the phone up and she said, it's Jürgen. So I just <laughs> took the car, drove directly into right into the grass field and picked up the phone. And then, yes, Jürgen Klopp said all the things I mentioned before. So uh, it was a pretty crazy story. And uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm just really happy that, that uh, Jürgen Klopp had the courage to call me. And why do I say the courage? I think you have to be very courageous as a top manager or a top person in, 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 in business life, you can say, to like call a pretty unknown person. Because Jürgen Klopp could could have say, Oh, we just try to we just try to deal with this this throw in challenge ourselves. But you know, uh, Jürgen Klopp is a guy who's saying, if I have a challenge I can't like cope with or my staff can't, let's just get some help from the outside. And sometimes people, not only managers and head coaches, are too proud to like ask for help. It's Things are much easier if we're asking for help. So, you know, I've never been told in Liverpool FC what to do with the throw-ins. Can you do a little bit like us, just, you know, a little bit different, tweak it a little bit? No, I've been giving an open role at Liverpool FC. Of course, I'm listening to other people and communicating and talking, being open-minded. But all in all, I have a free role I've been, I could have been doing what I want with the throw-ins at Liverpool. And it also meant that in my first season, 18-19 season, we went up to... to uh, possession and throw-ins under pressure on 68.4%. And we went from number 18 before I came in Premier League to number one, also number two in the whole Europe after one of my other clubs, FC Midtjylland from Denmark. Last season, we scored 14 goals after throw-in situations. And that's not the long throw-ins towards the opponent's goal because we don't do that in Liverpool, uh, but it's throw-ins all around the pitch. And, and this season, we scored seven goals halfway into the season after throw-in situations. And Three of the seven goals have been in Champions League, so so it has a big influence uh, to to like like focus on throwing coaching and, and make better throw-ins because some people think it's a small thing or marginal gains, but you are actually having normally between forty and sixty throw-ins in a match, so it's actually it's actually gigantic gains to to improve your throw-ins. It's only because of the football culture have been. Uh, really stopping uh, like the last 30 years, especially compared to, to other sports. So, uh, but again, I'm happy at where I am now. Um, you know, it's been totally fantastic to win all these things with Liverpool FC and the other clubs I'm, I'm working with. But, but my biggest uh, dream or goal is to change the football world. So, so that's also the reason why I'm writing a book about throw-ins. So it's not only... It's not only professional teams who can use my knowledge, but also amateur and youth teams from uh, from all around the world. So, uh, yeah, so that's my big goal. I can tell you the moment, I used the word inspiration a couple of times, the, the moment of inspiration for me when I thought, I'm going to get Thomas Gronemark on this podcast. I was doing a commentary with Warren Feeney. He used to play for Northern Ireland. He's managing in Bulgaria now. And we saw a really poor throw-in. And he, he didn't say anything, but I, I saw a little expression on his face, um, told a story. It happened again a minute later. And he said, Michael, I have to say this. I have tried in my own clubs to tell players how to take throw-ins. And the players always put it back. Oh, you don't tell me how to take a throw-in. It's just a throw-in. And I thought, well, there, there's people doing this at Liverpool and Ajax and RB Leipzig and all these big clubs. It's you. <laughs> um, how, how do you do it? How do you find it going in elite you know, athletes and telling them, 
maybe they're not doing it right or they can do it better when sometimes even amateur players think, I don't want to learn this? I think it, it's the most important thing is is giving the players, the coaches, the managers the why. You can say when I'm when I'm if I have a get a request from from a club, it's it's normally because they want to improve there. So normally the the manager, head coaches, the club itself want to be better. So for me, it's more about also assistant coaches. For me, it's more about the players themselves. So I'm giving them the why. So I can say what I said to. Um, to the, the, the players in the first training session in Liverpool. I said that there are normally between 40 to 60 throw-ins in a match. Um, you're also normally using 15 to 20 minutes of a match on throw-ins and throw-in related situations that's affected by the uh, movements you do around the throw-in situation. So we're not talking about small gains, but really gigantic gains. And then also, most teams have possession under 50% of the occasions when they have a throw-in under pressure, where the players are marked. Uh, and if you had the same possession percentage with your feet, you'll only be playing Sunday league football. And that's the truth. So now when the players are hearing these numbers, it gives meaning. And especially when you're a club like Liverpool, who are really bad at the throw-ins. And I'll say most clubs are bad at the throw-ins. They can really improve a lot. And then some Liverpool players are also saying, I'm not going to make it into stoke number two. With that, I meant we're not going to do a lot of long throw-ins towards the opponent's goals because that's not really Liverpool's throw, uh, playing style. And again, I'll, I'll, it's really important for me to say I have nothing against long throw-ins towards the opponent's goal. It's just perhaps only 10% of all clubs who can utilize this kind of set pieces effectively. I've been coaching in FC Midland where they scored 35 goals in four seasons at long throw-ins. I've been one season AC Horsens Danish Super League. They scored 10 goals in just one season, long throw-ins. So you can utilize it, but it's only when you have big players and, and like world-class throwers that I can develop to. Um, so, so again, back to your question, it's the, the most important thing is to give the players the why. Why is this important? But also to like measure how they improve. So, so but you can say in, in all my clubs, they've, uh, they, they've improved uh, a lot. Liverpool, I mentioned some things there. Ajax improved a lot. Um, you know, last season when I was there, uh, we won the Eras Division. Uh, Ghent, I've been, I'm not coaching them this year from Belgium, but the last two seasons, the last season, we were number two in Belgium, and that's a tough league. Uh, but we also had really big success in, in um, the Europa League too. So I think all, and including FC Midtjylland, winning several Danish championships while I'm there. Uh, so all my clubs have had pretty much success. So so for me, it's like the better you get at throw-ins, the more success you have in the games in general, the, the better why you are also giving the players. So if the players can see improvement, then, then it's also um, a motivation for themselves. And then you can say the training itself. I also try to, of course, the players learn throw in specific things, but also like make the, the th uh, throwing drills entertaining with passes and scoring on small goals because most of my focus is around space creation all around the pitch. So it's not only the throwing. Uh, things I'm doing. It's also space creation, and I'm I'm coaching all the players and the team. So, so, so it, my coaching is looking a lot like you know normal football coaching. So I'm often coaching on a Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday. It's not like normal set piece training with corners and 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 
free kicks where the clubs are also coach, always coaching that in, in, on a Friday and players are standing still for ages just to, to do, uh, you know, f- four different corners or so. And nothing wrong with that because you have to do it in this way to learn it. But my, you know, there's much more uh, life and energy, I think, in my, my throwing coaching. So, so in general, I think that the players are motivated. So, uh, yeah. And when you go in there, Thomas, you know, I guess traditionally you think of throw-in takers as being like left-backs or right-backs. Are you looking for who is the best at taking throw-ins? So, you know, is that something that you could see change where, I don't know, the, the, the club identifies an individual rather than a position to optimise their throw-in um, stats? I'll say no. Uh, yes, if you're looking at the, perhaps the 10% of the teams who can utilise the long throw-in as a set-piece weapon, then I think it's really important to take the best because there's really big difference. Let's just say you have a pretty good fullback who's really good at the throw-ins, who can throw uh, 32 meters but uh, after developing his throw-in. But if you then have, a, let's just say, a, a midfielder or even a central defender who can throw 37 or even further, then I'll, I'll, I'll take the midfielder central defender every day because it's like a... It's like a close situation where you're putting people up front to try to score that goal. So then I'll just choose the best. But when I'm looking at the other, all the other throw-ins all around the pitch, I'm coaching the players and the teams to that every player in the team can can do a throw-in both with so long as possible, so precise as possible. Also, decision making should I throw fast or should I have patience? But also seeing space being created around the pitch when we do movements, but also when to throw it, uh, when the right space is created. And the reason why I educate all players in this is because if you're looking at Liverpool FC, it's often like five, six, seven, eight different players in every game who are taking the throw-ins. And it's because the first one who gets the ball would like to see if there's either a fast, good option or if there's an option like after a few seconds. And if these players aren't educated, then they're, they're taking poor decisions. So, so it could be... It could be Mo Salah who takes a throw-in. It could be uh, uh, Hendo, uh, Jordan Henderson, who takes a throw-in at Liverpool. It could also be uh, Matt Sieber, Wardle van Dijk. I think the only one who's not like taking throw-ins in Liverpool, that's our goalkeeper, Ali, uh, Alisson. Uh, but every every other 10 players on the pitch can take a throw-in. And, and, but they have to be educated to, to do that well. So, so yes... All in all, if you see, of course, the, the fullbacks are taking more throw-ins uh, compared to 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 you know the, the the other players. But but yes, all the players are taking them once in a while. Does it still give you a bit of a thrill? You know, a Mo Salah working through your training and your techniques. Yeah, it, it gives you every time. You know, it the best thing for me is seeing throw-ins. I would much rather see a, a, a good throw-in movement than a, than a scissor kick up in the top corner. You know, of course, I enjoy that too. But, you know, uh, it, it's, it's not only the throw-in, but also the movements from the player because it's not about I have to get the ball, it's about we have to get the ball. So when I see a fantastic coordinated run, and it doesn't have to be like, like you know, uh, we don't have to be being agreeing on that before because my coaching is not like a playbook in American football. You know, of course, I have around 50 tools around the pitch in three zones, but but the players take their own decisions and, and use their own fantasy. So they can 
do make millions of options there. But if I see the players are creating something, uh, a fantastic kind of space with good movements, for me, it's like sitting at the cinema, seeing the best movie you could ever uh, imagine. So, so of course, I'm like, I'm a totally nerd. I'm totally passionate around throw-ins. But if I see, again, you mentioned Mo Salah, if he creates some kind of space together with another one or two or three other teammates, and then he gets the ball or creates space for some other, I just really love it. It fills my body with joy and I'm just so happy. And so, yeah, but I, but I guess that's the, that's the way it is to be passionate for something, no matter what it is in life. If, if you are, you think about it almost every second, you'll, yeah. You'll probably enjoy the all, all the good moments. And and in that answer cleared up some misconceptions because it isn't there's one way to particularly do something. It isn't you must throw a ball to a certain arc or you must throw it a certain distance. There's it's about adaptability and suitability. You can say that it's really about adapt to the situation and so so let's say we just try to open up for a solution near the thrower and but then the, the solution is closed and then it just opens up three four five other solutions so it goes like in waves and it's the same with the defending uh, but when we have a throw in it, it's all about seeing what is best in 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 that that solution and for me it it, it works much better than a, like a playbook in american football where you have three options you always do in the attacking third because at one hand this this playbook will be red and then you know so it's much more dangerous to to increase the players throwing intelligence like i'm doing with, with my training that's also the reason why i'm starting with the basics i'm not starting with with showing the players like a complex tool in the middle of the pitch or defending zone or attacking zone uh, i'm starting with the basic things like making the place through further, more precise, getting the feeling of basic space creation, how you, you do that. And then I, I put on top like the basic tools, different tools to create space. And on top of that, I'm using tools for, for different parts of the pits. And I'm also using what I call individual throwing superpowers because different players have different strengths. Like some players are good with the first touch. Some players are physical strong. Some players are fast. And you can use them in different ways. Um, in, in, in different tools and different zones. And it would be really stupid to like, like try to make a big box where the man in behind have to get and protect the ball. If you're taking uh, a player who weighs 60 kilos there and like when the wind blows, he, he, he gets uh, away. Don't use him for that, you know? So, so it's all about, yeah, thinking all these things into to my training, my coaching, and then learn the players all these things so they can take their own decisions when they're playing the match. And you can say that, especially in Liverpool, the, we have done that well, but especially the players have done that well too. Because in the end, it's the players who have to run, who have to throw, who have to take the decisions. You've worked so hard to not work for clubs rivals and you can see that you know working for one club in a country and then the champions league draw happens and all of a sudden liverpool ajax Michelin all in one group and even having qualified from the group liverpool now have rb leipzig how strange is that for you or, or maybe they're the perfect games all good throw-ins <laughs> yeah i can say you uh it was okay for me because you know i i haven't been coaching fc Midland in this season and and I've been coaching them for ten seasons or so. Uh, I coached Ajax in uh, last season, the full season, and 
uh, RB Leipzig, that was like the same first season, like Liverpool's first season, so 18-19 season. So they've all been like my former clubs. So uh, for me, it was was pretty fine that that we, we drove them. But of course, it gave a lot of media attention, like they call it uh, Thomas Gronemark group and everything <laughs> like crazy. So it's a fun story. And I actually saw the draw like on live score and we... We drew first Ajax, I think it was, and then it was uh, Atalanta. And a lot of people thought I also coached them because I've been coaching Atlanta. 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 <laughs> uh, <laughs> so people thought it was all four teams. And then it, we, and then we had like the fourth team, and already it was crazy to meet Ajax. And um, I, I think we, how many? I think it was eight groups or so. And then, then. Then uh, Midtjylland was not drawn first, and then they were not drawn second, and then on and on. And, and then in the end, there was only like, uh, as I remember, like two or three teams left, and then it was Liverpool's group, and then uh, Midtjylland was drawn. So that was uh, totally, totally crazy. And and then in the, the, the knockout stage here, the next time, RB Leipzig, <laughs> that's also crazy. So, so... Yeah, but but for me it's okay. I, I've tried a few times in Denmark that I coached two two teams at one time, and and so of course that's a special feeling. But but I'll also say that I've I've changed my approach a little bit because you know I'm not so much at the moment against to coach different teams. A lot of people think that oh when I'm been when I'm coaching Liverpool FC I'll never coach Manchester United. Of course I can do that, because if I'm not at Liverpool FC, why shouldn't I do it? I know it's a gigantic rival, but you know, a lot of, a lot of people who, who think that you can do that, they've been Liverpool fans their whole life. I'm not a Liverpool fan. Uh, I, I have, I've, all my life have sympathy for Liverpool because, I, you know, I love the club and everything around it, but I'm not, I'm not a Liverpool fan. So, so I can coach whoever I want, and and for those people who are saying, uh, who are who are mad at at like professional football players who are shifting to rivals, I think it's a little bit another thing because they've been like earning millions of pounds. You know, they have so many money on their bank account, and they they could they could just not do it. But you know, I'm a throwing coach, and even though. I, I have a fantastic life now. I can't uh, make a living just by coaching Liverpool FC. So, so that's the, that's just the, the the way it is. So, so I can unless a, unless a team pay me uh, only to coach that team in, in a league, they can do that. But they have to pay for it. It's not like if I'm coaching Liverpool FC, I can't coach any other Premier League team. So, I think that when I just made my first breakthrough I had a little bit like oh I'm I only want to coach Liverpool because I got this chance but now I'm I'm at a stage where I'm saying hey why not help other teams too so so yes you can see me coach other Premier League season or sorry teams this season you can also see me coach big rivals in 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 other team uh, sorry other seasons too I've nothing um uh, that's fine for me. And and if some people don't like it, it's also fine for me. Well, there's a bit of transfer <laughs> speculation then. So maybe the, the phone will ring after this interview. It might be Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. <laughs> yeah, you, people can call if, if they want because, I, you know, you should never like, like say you won't do. 
a thing in, in life because I've seen Manchester United also in the games against Liverpool, but I've also seen Manchester United uh, in many other games this season and they are really bad at the throw-ins. So I think they're, they're losing the ball almost every time and I think Man United are in the same position as Liverpool were before I came to them. They're, they were really at the bottom of the Premier League. And, and yeah, Manchester United could have the same improvement like Liverpool had because of course it's not good to lose the ball so much when you have to throw in. So um, yeah, let's see what, what the future brings. Before I let you go, you mentioned your book. Um, can you tell us when's it coming out, where we can find it? No, I, I can't really say when it's coming out yet, uh, but I'm writing on it now. I've been writing, I think it's uh, uh, 68,000 words, so already almost wow. 200 pages. Um, I can just say that when it, it, uh, it's published, it'll make a big change in, in football, not only for the pro teams, but especially for the amateur and, and youth teams. If um, I will publish uh, in a year or three years or what, I don't know yet because... Uh, I don't know if you or any of the listeners here have tried to write a book, but it's not a thing you do in, in three months. So it's also depending on how much work I have with analysis, but also my work around the world. So, But you can be 100% sure at, at one stage I'll, I'll publish my book. But until I publish my book, I, I have some uh, free drills. Um, uh, it's it's my four best basic throw-in drills around the th- near area of the thrower, and you can get them on uh, thomasgrunmark.com/free. Uh, already around four thousand coaches from all around the world have picked these um, drills up, and uh, people are saying they like them. You can use the drills from all from U10 and up to uh, professional players. I've been using these drills also for Liverpool FC, Premier League, Ajax, Gent, you know, all my teams. So. Uh, I recommend to, to do that. And of course, when I publish my book in the future, I'll also go on on like book tours. So it's also uh, payable for me to to like uh, come to smaller clubs too, because I, then it's easy to visit several clubs in one trip. And so I'll be doing online courses, seminars, talks and everything. So I can't wait to publish my book. Uh, so, so again, just follow me. Uh, via my newsletter, my homepage, or find me on my YouTube channel, Twitter, LinkedIn, or something uh, like that, Instagram too. So, uh, yeah. Brilliant. So make sure you see that. There's lots of great advice on there, and I was on having a nosy earlier, so I can I can definitely say that. Um, have you got a favorite pupil? Just but last question. Have you got a, a favorite pupil that you could maybe say, this is a player that I'm particularly proud of their development, or maybe they're the best in Europe? I'll say a lot of people ask me who's the best throwers in the world. And of course, you can always look at the long throwing. But first of all, uh, I'm not, of course, I'm focusing on the long throwings in the clubs where that's important. But, but I think it's even more important to have players who can throw fast, throw precise, um, take the right decision, see space being created. And if I have to mention the two best players in the world at the moment, at least, I think it's uh, Robo and Robertson from Liverpool FC and Trent, Trent Alexander-Arnold, because they have improved a lot. Uh, when I came to the club, they were really bad at taking throw-ins, taking decisions, but of, of course also the team itself was really bad. But they've just improved so much, um, So and they've made a lot of, uh, you can say, throw-in assists from all around the pitch uh, the last three seasons. So I'm just proud of uh, these two players they're just not only 
fantastic throwing takers, not only fantastic uh, football players, but they're also some some good good boys, uh, both of them. So uh, yeah, so um, look after these two in a match. And it's again important to say it's not perfectionism. Uh, there are no players in the world who are doing it perfect every time. But again, remember that Liverpool went from taking having four out of ten good throw-ins in a match to taking seven out of ten, and, and that's like a gigantic step. So look at Robo and Trent. There you go. There's your homework, everybody. Thomas Grunemark, thank you so much for coming on to the Michael Clark Show podcast. It's been really nice hearing from you and uh, learning as well about your journey. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you for listening to the Michael Clark Show podcast. You can follow me at M Clark Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check back every Wednesday for a brand new episode, which you can download as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also watch the entire interview via my YouTube channel. That is youtube.com forward slash The Michael Clark Show. And if you like our theme song, it has been kindly provided by the brilliant SX70. Search for SX-70 on Spotify to stream their music. Until next Wednesday, take care. I'll speak to you soon.